Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live, and we're taking a few moments out of your podcast just to ask you to uh, think about um, making a donation to continue allowing us to produce Where We Live and uh, bring it to you every day. Uh, The number to donate is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. Think about the content that you hear on this station and specifically on this program, where each day we work hard to keep you connected to your community, to the issues that matter most to the people in your backyard. If that is something that you value, we hope you will support it today. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure, and it's so appreciated by us. one 800 or online at wnpr.org, and thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What do Americans know about Iran today? News coverage centers on the fate of the international Iran nuclear deal after the U.S. withdrawal, and which countries Iran's anti-Western government counts as its allies. But this month, the country celebrates 40 years since Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran from exile after the Shah was overthrown. What did the Islamic Revolution mean for Iranians living there then and for those now spread around the world today? That conversation coming up. My first guest grew up during this period. Neusha Humayun Far is the author of the book, Taking Cover, One Girl's Story of Growing Up During the Iranian Revolution. The book is written for young adults, but her coming-of-age story in a country dramatically changed by revolution can easily appeal to anyone as it touches on religious, political, and social freedoms. Neusha joins us today from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Neusha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. I mentioned your memoir, uh, Taking Cover, is written for young adults. Uh, Why did you take this approach? Yes, um... I wrote the book from the point of view of a young child because I thought it would make the story a lot more approachable for um, young adults. Uh, At the time that I workshopped the stories to a writer's group that I belong to, there was one woman who read all of my stories and said, you know, this actually would do really well with a young adult audience. Um, And I was really pleased to hear her say that. So I did a little bit of research at the time uh, between 2006 and 2008 to see if there were any similar books on the market. And I have to say, I didn't find too many. So I thought, this is my great shot to expose a younger audience to my story growing up in Iran. I love the uh, the cover of the book because I believe that's a picture of you, a very fashionable uh, a young girl. Um, so tell us about uh, your upbringing. So you were five when you moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to Iran, so back in the mid-1970s. What do you remember about that move? Yes, it was 1976. I was five years old, and we lived in Pittsburgh. My mother is French, and my father is Iranian. And I remember my toys um, very vividly and having to decide which ones we would take to Iran with us and which ones I would have to part with. Uh, Thankfully, I have terrific parents, and they agreed to take many of my toys to Iran with us. Um, But I had to say goodbye to my canary bird, Titi. Obviously, a little canary can't uh, survive a flight. 
So that was really sad. And having to say goodbye to some of my kindergarten friends back in Pittsburgh. Um, but I remember feeling also excited about the new adventure that uh, we were embarking upon with my parents. Why did your parents want to move back? The situation in the 60s and 70s in Iran was really well. Uh, The Shah of Iran had made a lot of changes um, for the good. He had modernized the country uh, quite a bit. There were so many hospitals being built and schools and universities. So many foreigners from Europe um, and all across the world moving to Iran to open businesses or to open companies. Um, And it was really a prosperous time in Iran's history. My father had lived away from home for 13 years by then, and his family kept asking him to move back home and see for himself how great Iran had become. And so after he finished um, his studies in Pittsburgh, he uh, decided to move back to Iran. And my mother had once visited Iran as well. I think it was in 1972 or perhaps 1973, and she loved it there. She had fallen in love with my dad's family with the culture, with the food, and she was looking forward to living there. So they uh, they picked uh, the family up, moved back to Iran in 1976. Uh, was it difficult to get used to the schools, the culture there once you were back? Um, initially it was, yes. Uh, you know, being uh, as young as I was um, and not knowing anything about the culture, not even really remembering anybody from my father's side of the family um, and having to learn a new language and then suddenly starting a new uh, big bilingual school, a French-Iranian school. And those initial things that you deal with, getting to know new people and new surroundings and new homes and um, was a little bit challenging at first. And I had some resistance. Um, I kept wishing, I guess, deep down that we would eventually uh, go back to Pittsburgh, which was my first home and what I considered to be my first home. How did you pick up the language? Um, I have uh, two older cousins that um, really enjoyed watching TV. And so I hung out with them quite a bit because when we first moved to Iran, we lived with my aunt Minu, uh, my father's younger sister. Uh, She had a really nice house, and so she was able to accommodate us for several months. And I was with my cousins and their friends, and we uh, listened to music, and we watched TV. And kids are pretty clever, and they uh, learn languages very easily. So I had learned uh, Persian or Farsi very early on, but I was kind of trying to hide it from my parents. And you you talk about that in the book, this this moment where uh, you, you refused to um, uh, speak uh, uh, to your teacher, um, and then your father finding out later that you, you actually you were actually doing pretty well. <laughs> yes, uh, that was the beginning of my mischievous um, time. Uh, yes, I had learned it, but I kept thinking, you know what, if my parents don't find out that I speak Farsi, they might have to give up and pack up and go back to Pittsburgh. So um, I wasn't a particular fan of my uh, Persian teacher. Um, She was very stern and and very strict, um, as I guess a lot of teachers were back then when I was growing up. And she really, you know, didn't want to accommodate me. Um, And so I just put up this big resistance towards doing anything in class and was, I guess, a big trouble for her. 
until she uh, had to drag me to the principal's office, um, or my dad rather dragged her to the principal's office because she had scolded me in class and said something she never should have said, you know, which was she would break my hand if I didn't pick up my pencil and start practicing writing the alphabet. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it was in that moment that my uh, dad and the principal realized that I had been playing a game, and in fact, I understood everything the teacher was saying, and I was just pretending not to understand her. My guest today is Neusha Homeunfar, author of Taking Cover, One Girl's Story of Growing Up During the Iranian Revolution. Uh, she joins us today from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're talking with Neusha because uh, this month Iran is celebrating uh, its 40th anniversary uh, since the Iranian Revolution. Uh, when you were back in Iran, again, you were a young girl, uh, five or six years old, but did it ever uh, come to the point where, uh, how did people accept you, you um, as someone who was half Iranian, your mother being French? My family was so welcoming. Um, in fact, years before that, when my dad decided to leave Iran, which was in the mid-1960s, my grandmother, uh, Maman Bozorg, she pulled him aside and she said, my son, I give you permission to marry a foreign woman. Um, I don't think an Iranian woman would suit your temperament at all. So she was very open to that um, possibility happening once she uh, agreed for her son to go abroad. And uh, in those years, and even now, Iranians are very open to other cultures. They are particularly fond of Europeans, uh, of Americans, and Part of the reason why my mother loved it there so much was just how nice everyone was to her. And they loved the fact that she was French and she was blonde and she had blue eyes and, you know, she stood apart from everyone. And so I embodied that a little bit for them because I was this French Iranian little kid and they called me a little doll. And um, it was talked about quite a bit as a point of pride that uh, their son had um, gone overseas and, you know, found a French woman and uh, she had agreed to come back home with him. So when did things start to change? So again, you were there in 1976. uh, As uh, uh, people started uh, protesting against the Shah and the climate started changing, how did you as a, as a, a, a school student see those changes happening? Right. Initially, as a child, you uh, notice events of the world through the eyes of the grownups that are around you. Um, because when you're a kid, you're just thinking about playing and having friends and doing fun things. Uh, you don't really care about the political climate. You're, you're not really aware of it. But things were brewing, and it was making the adults around us very animated and agitated. And people were engaging in a lot of political debate and political discussions and arguments were ensuing. And so there was a lot of energy spent on what was happening in Iran. And I began to overhear a lot of conversations um, my dad was having either on the phone or he was hosting friends in our home and talking about, you know, the situation not being so good and the Shah might be in danger. Um, There might be some events brewing, but nobody really, I think could have foreseen quite what happened in 1979. I think people maybe had a sense that the Shah, you know, wasn't maybe in the best position and that maybe there were a lot of people that disliked him. They thought he was becoming too westernized, too fast, modernizing Iran too quickly, that people were not ready for it. Um, And so they were resisting that. 
But I don't think anybody really realized just how huge the revolution was going to be in 1979. And when we think about the revolution, it wasn't just one side calling for a change from uh, this monarchy. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about um, how people um, from different backgrounds uh, came together uh, looking for change? Yeah, so there was uh, several groups, as you mentioned, um, that were involved in uh, making the revolution successful. Um, The first one was a group of very religious, devout individuals who um, had began hearing cassette tapes that the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was uh, an Islamic cleric and had been... uh, sent to exile by the Shah, and he lived in France. And he was recording these cassette tapes from overseas, talking about religious rhetoric and um, encouraging the people of Iran to think about their religion and their faith and living humble lives and uh, staying away from Westernization. And these cassette tapes were infiltrating uh, various um, mosques in in Iran throughout the country, and everybody was listening to them. Um, And the more traditional uh, religious people were really responding in a very positive way and wanted to see the Ayatollah come back. And then you also had the younger generation, which was perhaps more um, had leftist leanings, um, something that was uh, very popular in the 60s and 70s among uh, young, uh, educated Iranians. And they, too, put up a resistance to the Shah, thinking, you know, that he was a Western puppet um, and that he was taking his cues from from the West. And so these two big groups were really the ones that poured out into the streets calling um, for the Shah to leave Iran. Um, But the religious group was the one asking for the Ayatollah to come and take uh, over the reins of power. I don't think it was necessarily the leftist groups that was asking for the Ayatollah Mm -hmm. to come and have the seat of power. When you uh, came back to Iran with your family, you were in a school with both boys and girls. Um, After Ayatollah uh, Khomeini uh, became uh, the supreme leader, uh, some of the changes, you were no longer at the school that you started, and even the clothes that you wore also changed. That's right. Um, So when the revolution happened, some of the changes to the school didn't quite happen overnight. So I was in third grade when the revolution took place. The only immediate thing that happened was that our school closed for several weeks because it was uh, French-Iranian. A lot of the French teachers ended up um, leaving temporarily, and then it became permanent. Um, And so it was really exciting for us kids because suddenly we had no school. Um, So that was the first thing that happened. And when we came back for fourth grade, Um, we realized that uh, boys and girls had been separated. So we, the girls occupied one area of the school and the boys occupied a different area. And we had this big um, sort of division uh, with like metal gates between us. We still managed to, you know, talk to each other a little bit through the gates, but, you know, we were uh, prohibited from doing that. And then uh, by fifth grade, the girls were asked to come to school wearing a robe, um, a loose robe that covered everything from the neck down. We couldn't wear a skirt underneath it. We had to wear pants, um, preferably loose pants. And then we were also encouraged to wear a scarf, although that didn't become mandatory until I was in sixth grade. Uh, At the same time, when all of these changes were happening, uh, with French no longer being taught, how did that impact your mother, uh, someone who uh, was not Iranian by birth? uh, You know, was she fearful at all? She wasn't. Um, In hindsight, I 
suppose she should have been, but I think she was just very irate um, that the French curriculum had been eliminated from the school program. Um, the decision had been made by the Islamic Republic that uh, Western education uh, was not necessary and uh, they were not going to support it. So it wasn't just the French curriculum, but there was also some English curriculums and others that were scrapped um, from the school system. And my mother got together along with some other uh, French women that lived in Iran and had been living in Iran for some years. And they found a program through the French embassy um, that supported individuals either of French birth or individuals who were interested in obtaining a French diploma um, to pursue their studies outside of France. And so as soon as my mom found find out about this program, she signed up for it. And even though she knew that there were some risks involved because she was going to be hosting students in her home um, and teaching them basically a French uh, curriculum, which the government was not in support of, she decided that she was willing to take that chance because she was giving these kids an opportunity to have a French diploma, something that could have become very useful in their futures. So she went full speed ahead with that decision. Uh, so you saw society uh, changing around you uh, after, uh, again, uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, came back uh, to Iran. But then with the Iran-Iraq war, war um, how did that change your everyday? Was it a, a, a scary time to be growing up? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the revolution was one thing that happened in 79. And then before we knew it, we found ourselves at war with our neighbor Iraq in uh, 1980. So we went from having to absorb an Islamic Republic to suddenly being at war and fearing getting bombed on. Um, so for a long time, uh, f we didn't think that the Iraqi forces would be able to reach Tehran, the capital where we lived, because geographically the distance uh, was quite large. Um, but boy, were we wrong. Um, we started having to take cover, um, seek shelter with our neighbors who lived in the basement. Um, and it was really just very unsettling, as you can imagine. But among um, all of that scary stuff, there were also just a lot of socializing going on. Um, you know, all the neighbors would be gathered around each other and everyone would bring a, a dish um, to share with the neighbors. And there was a lot of talking and listening to music. And then as soon as the siren would go off, um, the power would be either automatically cut or we would have to turn off all the lights and just lay low until the bombs, you know, fell and uh, the red siren would end and the white siren would blare, which sign signaled the end of the bombings, and uh, we were free to go back home. My guest today is Neusha Homa Umfar, author of Taking Cover, One Girl's Story of Growing Up During the Iranian Revolution. Again, this month, Iran celebrates 40 years uh, since that uh, revolution. Uh, she's joining us today from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C. We're going to continue our conversation right after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 
Neusha Homa-Unfar, author of Taking Cover, One Girl's Story of Growing Up During the Iranian Revolution, joins me today. She grew up in two worlds, Pittsburgh and Tehran. As a teenager, she saw firsthand how the Iranian Revolution changed the country she grew to love as a child. And despite her family's attachment to Iran, they weren't destined to stay. Uh, we're going to have an excerpt of her book on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, uh, later today. Uh, Neusha, we were talking about what it was like uh, to, uh, again, see uh, the revolution happening and the changes to um, how Iranians were living, uh, but also with the war, um, having to go down to the basement when there were um, uh, warnings about bombings. But what happened to your cousin during this time uh, where your family really started to be fearful uh, for their loved ones? Yes. um, As you mentioned, the war was happening and young boys were getting drafted to join the war. And many families were uh, happy to do that because they were in support and in favor of this war. But a lot of others, including ours, uh, was not. And so uh, my family, Aunt Minu and her husband, Uncle Masood, definitely did not want Omid to be drafted to participate in this war that they did not believe in at all. And so um, they used the services of a smuggler, um, which was quite common in those days. A lot of people who could afford it were um, procuring these services to help their sons escape, escape this war uh, and escape the country. And so um, this is what was going to be happening to Omid. He was supposed to be uh, leaving Iran through the Turkish border. And unfortunately, um, it was understanding that there was probably a mole in the group of boys that were being smuggled out. And uh, they were found and discovered, and many of them were able to escape, escape, um, but uh, not all of them. And Omid, my cousin, was arrested and uh, locked up for a month in solitary confinement in a cell so small he couldn't even stretch his legs. And he was beaten um, and just poorly treated and not given enough food. And he lost a tremendous amount of weight and lost hearing in one of his ears where he was getting smacked in the face so often. What was your family's reaction? Were there was there a conversation about leaving the country that they loved, or was it still let's uh, you know stick it out and see what happens? Well, there were so many of those conversations, and it was so tough to make that decision. Um, my parents had just moved there in 1976, and in the background, everyone just kept thinking that this revolution would not last, and that they would these uh, religious clerics would eventually collapse and fall, and we would be able to go back to our normal lives. Um, but that just has not been the case. As you say, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary now, um, and it's just absolutely unbelievable, unbelievable to think that they're still around. Uh, Niusha, we were wondering if you could uh, read an excerpt from your book. Yes, of course. This is from Chapter 11, Fury. The Iran I had fallen in love with had changed almost beyond recognition. Here I was, kidnapped by the Black Crows while my mother watched, and locked in this makeshift prison. I wondered how a bit of skin showing could constitute such a horrible crime. Enraged, I felt ready to yell obscenities at the Black Crows. I put my ear to the door, but I couldn't hear anything. This was the most ridiculous situation. At 15, I was living the wrong life, the wrong story, yet it was so real that it felt unreal. It was like a bad joke or a bad movie, a nightmare. Any minute now, I would wake up and none of this would exist. My throat felt so dry I couldn't swallow. 
Blinking back tears, I dug my nails into my fists until I drew blood. I stared at the shapes I'd made in my palms, open-ended red parentheses. I focused on the color changes, deep crimson to bluish purple. It was almost pretty. I went back to the window and leaned my head against it. I closed my eyes. I remembered Aunt Minu recently asking Baba, Brother, why are you staying here? Something in her tone made Baba look at her for a long time. Finally, he had said, But Iran is my home, Minu. It's not hers, Aunt Minu said. You have a chance to start your lives over. Why aren't you taking it? Baba hadn't answered. Do you still think the regime is going to change? It won't. These ayatollahs are not going anywhere. But you can leave any time you want. It's not that simple, is it? Yes, it is, brother. You don't have to feel guilty about us staying in Iran. Just think of your wife and kids. Baba sighed and shook his head. After a long time, he picked up his book and left the room. Uh, that's Niusha Homeun Far again, author of Taking Cover, reading an excerpt from her book. Uh, so you mentioned these black crows. Can you briefly tell us what happened to you uh, that uh, led this, this conversation to happen? The Black Crows were a group of Iranian authorities, um, female authorities, who patrolled the streets of Tehran to make sure that all of the women were um, properly covered in the manner in which they dictated. So that means only the oval of a woman's face could show and her hands from the wrist down and everything else had to be covered. And on the day you mentioned in 1986, it was a very hot summer day and I was out uh, with my mom and my brother and um, it was so hot that I had unbuttoned uh, my top collar of my robe and I had rolled up my sleeves so a few inches of my arm was showing and a little bit of my neck was showing as well. And uh, as bad luck would have it, these uh, Black Rose or Zainab sisters spotted me and uh, they made a U-turn and came after me. And um, without even saying a word, one of them got out and shoved me into the car. And they drove me into uh, a newly developed neighborhood. Um, and they took me into a building that was still under construction and took me upstairs. And they went into an apartment. And to this day, I'm not sure what this apartment represented to them. I would like to think that maybe it was a little hiding place for them um, to hide away from their bosses, maybe. But I'm not sure. Um, we end up in this apartment and they locked me in a room. Uh, and held me there for a few hours until they finally let me go. Were you surprised that you were able to leave? I was. Um, and the whole time that this was happening, I was walking down the stairs you know, faster and faster and faster. I thought they were playing a trick on me and that they would... Uh, capture me again, or maybe there were other black crows uh, downstairs waiting for me to take me to the actual prison. Um, and then when nobody came after me, I just, I was elated um, and kept thinking how lucky I was because this wasn't the fate of a lot of other women. Uh, most women who were detained or arrested were taken to Evin prison or other prisons and um, treated horribly. So for a long time, I thought, wow, uh, you know, I actually got it easy. Mm. So you found yourself again uh, leaving, uh, and this time going back to Pittsburgh. I don't want to give too much away uh, from the book about uh, your departure from that country, uh, but was it uh, difficult then to assimilate back in, into to culture in the States? 
Yes, it was. I didn't think it would be because uh, we were so excited to move back to Pittsburgh uh, to a city that we knew. But I wasn't um, quite like the other teenagers around me. I'd come from a, a country at war and with uh, an Islamic regime. So I that had really taken a toll on me as just being a normal teenager. And I would just keep hearing these conversations around me of other girls talking about, oh, I'm having such a bad hair day and oh, I ran out of mousse today or the drugstore doesn't carry my uh, favorite hair products and think, I don't even know how to talk to these girls and, and I really wanted to. Um, but it, it took me months really to just kind of uh, shed that aura I think I was presenting of, of myself as this, you know, kind of difficult looking teenager. Um, and it was finally with the help of two lovely um, uh, local girls who just kind of embraced me and took me under their wing that I learned what it was like to be just a regular teen with uh, regular everyday problems. Anusha, you would go back to Iran a couple of times. I believe your last visit uh, was in 2006. What do you want people uh, to know in this country about the Iran uh, that you grew to love and unfortunately are unable to live there today? I wish what people would take away from my book is that Iranians are truly wonderful people. They are so warm and hospitable and kind and full of love. Um, and they really welcome you into their homes. And I just really want people to look at things from a different angle. The media today covers so many negative things, um, but it's not just all of that. There are just these lovely people there um, that included my family that have just been so given and so wonderful. And the food is great and the culture is amazing. <laughs> well, we want to thank you again for speaking with with us here on Where We Live. Nyusha Homa Unfar, again, author of Taking Cover. Uh, we'll have an excerpt on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Nyusha, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's been a pleasure. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's our w, uh, mini winter membership campaign on WMPR. If you, sub- if you appreciate the programming here, here's the number to call to support it. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live. Thanks for joining us today and listening to Where We Live, the podcast. It does take a lot of work, as Lydia and I both know, to put together a show like this with so many different voices and and coming to you be a part of supporting that. The number to call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. We are so happy to have you listening to this podcast. We found that oftentimes people don't even realize that it exists. They just think that we (laughs) broadcast between 9 and 10 a.m. and 7 and 8 p.m. But the reality is that you can go online and listen at any time of day at your convenience. It's there for you, and we hope that you'll support it as well. Again, that number, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. Go online to wnpr.org. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure, and thank you so much in advance. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Where We Live is coming to a coffee shop near you. We've been hosting coffee breaks at local cafes around the state to hear from you. What issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? You can join me and Where We Live producers Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff Tuesday, February 26th at Washington Street Coffee House in New London, Connecticut. You can check out more uh, on our Facebook page. Just search for Where We Live. Now today... Well, now another turning point in Iran. All the years of conflict, the months of marches and demonstrations, the rioting and the dying, culminated in a fantastic scene today, an overwhelming outpouring of emotion in Tehran. 
for now, not only has one leader gone, another has returned. That's a clip from a 1979 ABC broadcast. After Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran in 1979 and became supreme leader of a newly formed Islamic Republic, many Iranians were exiled. How did the totalitarian regime affect the culture of Iranians who stayed and its diaspora? We wanted to know more about the role of literature during this time and how the revolution influenced Iranian writers in the years after. So joining me now in studio is Marie Ospi, assistant professor of English and global Islamic studies at Connecticut. At college. She has a forthcoming book called Genres Without Borders, Reading Globally Between Modern Iran and the West. Marie, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Iran's rich literary history? Uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like before the revolution. So I would say that most um, American readers are more familiar with classical Persian literature, particularly poetry. An oft kind of cited statistic is that Rumi is the best-selling poet in the United States. Um, and your your first guest on the program today, uh, her memoir, I think, actually reflects that in the epigraphs of all the chapters, which many are Persian proverbs, and some are um, quotes from classical poets, right? Saadi and Rumi and Hafiz are just cited proverbially all the time um, in not only modern Iranian literature, but in just everyday, everyday speech. And that's something that struck me uh, the first time immediately I visited uh, Iran in 2006, is how central literature is to everyday life, um, even perhaps especially among young people. And um, things like teenagers visiting the tomb of Hafez and reciting his poetry just struck me as, as really deeply rooted and, and unique to, to Iranian culture. Um, American readers often don't know some of the major figures of modern Iranian literature. Part of that is for political reasons, like constantly shifting sanctions and the embargo. Um, but I would say since the revolution, there's been this kind of two-part flourishing of literature, partly in diaspora, because, of course, a lot of artists um, and writers left. Um, some of these are memoirs, but uh, such as your first guest today, but also many other genres, um, lots of poets, lots of novelists. Um, so kind of two generations of Iranian American literature, someone like Shari Armandani-Pur is someone who left quite recently, but also major second generation writers like uh, Solmaz Sharif, uh, the poet Porushista Khakpur, um, also many Iranian French writers. Of course, the diaspora is multi-sided, right? But then there were also writers who stayed, so who made a point of not wanting to um, not wanting to leave, just to stay and be dissidents. And um, some of those in- most prominent dissident voices included poets such as Simin Bebahani and the novelist Simin Danishvar. Uh, when uh, Marie, uh, maybe get a little closer to the microphone so our listeners can hear you. When we think about the Iranians, the artists, the intellectuals who felt like they have they had to leave, where did they go? So Paris was a major site. Here in the U.S., um, Los Angeles in particular, we often hear about Tarantula, well, Westwood being described as Tarantulas. Um Toronto is a major, um, another Iranian diasporic center. Uh, in New York, Great Neck. Uh, so all over the world. But Paris, I would say, um, Iran has kind of a long history of Francophilia and uh, a lot of Iranian and French cultural elements um, have long in- interacted. So um, I mean, Khomeini himself was in exile in Paris, for one thing. And the Shah's last prime minister, Shapur Bakhtiar, was kind of governing remotely from from Paris in, in his last um, days there, was but it, also writers and artists. Was it censorship that uh, led them away from their country? Uh, yes. So there have been a couple of, of waves of emigration from Iran, right? First, um, royalists, people in the Shah's sort of inner circle, and then subsequent waves of um artists and writers fleeing censorship and persecution. Um, but as I said, many, many writers also stayed right in spite of that. And um, something I've written about is how uh, there really has been this elaborate underground network, not only of bookstores and publishers, but also in um, 
the use of classical Persian literary symbolism um, in, in literature that um, has been used as a kind of subterfuge to avoid uh, the large-scale censorship. So tell us some more about the symbols that were used. Sure. So first of all, I want to say about censorship that it didn't start with the with the revolution, right? So there's been much like, so there's been continuity in the literary tradition before and after the revolution, but there's also been uh, continuity in the censorship. It's just that censorship has taken different forms. One of the, when I was in Iran, I was able to interview kind of a major publisher and translator named Goli Emami, who said under the Shah, it was the same trouble. And she made a point. His secret police, for example, was notorious. And you couldn't, for example, print the word communism before the revolution. Whereas afterwards, of course, censorship of nudity and sexuality became became more prominent. So censorship takes many forms, and it has been a constant thing that Iranian writers have had to contend with for a long time. And so um, that, to me, partly explains why symbols, classical symbols like pomegranates, are now used to, for example, subtly indicate um, femininity or fertility or uh, in scenes in novels, for example, or in poems. Simina Bebahani has a line, um, poems and pomegranates wrought side by side, which to me indicates, um, you know, a subtle, a subtle um, hint that women's rights are deeply linked to freedom of expression and literary expression in Iran, right? And that has a lot to do with how female-dominated, in fact, modern Iranian literary tradition has been. Does that uh, bump up against stereotypes that people may have about Iran uh, being an Islamic republic, that there are women writers that are becoming prominent and not afraid to use their writing as a way of uh, political protest? Absolutely. So there are, of course, a lot of stereotypes surrounding women in Iran, um, something that, and this statistic may be a little bit out of date, but uh, something Americans often don't know is how female-dominated um, higher education is in Iran. So the university population is 68% women. Um, and that, of course, is reflected in how I, I view the modern Iranian literary and artistic community as, as quite female-dominated you know, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, which is something I think you see both in Iran and in diaspora. My guest today is Marie Osby, Assistant Professor of English and Global Islamic Studies at Connecticut College. Uh, we're talking with her today to get an idea of how the revolution uh, impacted Iranians uh, when they fled or when they stayed. You, a couple of times you've mentioned, uh, Marie, uh, the so-called lioness of Iran. Uh, tell me a little bit more about her and her writing. So Simina Babahani, um, it's sort of impossible to overstate her role in modern Iranian literature. She lived from, from 1929 to 2014, um, and she wrote, she's known largely for reviving and modernizing the ghazal form, the poetic form of the ghazal, um, and by in particular formal ways, uh, kind of dispensing with the end rhyme of, of the couplets to open it up, make it more flexible, and um, eliminating the takhalos, which is the signature convention at the end of the ghazal. Um, so Hafez will always say, I Hafez, at the end of his ghazals. But um, she did away with that, which to me opens the form and makes it a more communal site of potential protest. So in fact, her ghazals and, for that matter, Furuk Farukzad's work, many other uh, poets that you might call feminist, um, are often cited in, in protests today. Could you read a little bit of her work? Again, this uh, Samim Bebahani. Yeah, so just to preface it a little bit, um, I want to read a few lines from her poem, Dobari Misazamet Vatan, which is My Country, I Will Build You Again, one of her most famous poems. And it exemplifies both the, I think, the nationalist, deeply patriotic, and the transnational uh, kind of global reach in, within her work. So Iran is a country of paradoxes, and one of them is that it's you know, deeply nationalist and also deeply multicultural at the same time. So to read a few lines. My country, I will build you again, if need be, with bricks made from my life. I will build columns to support your roof, if need be, with my bones. I will inhale again the perfume of flowers favored by your youth. 
I will wash again the blood off your body with torrents of my tears. Once more the darkness will leave this house. I will paint my poems blue with the color of our sky. It's really lovely uh, hearing you read uh, that portion of, of, of one of her poems. Um, again, she died in 2014. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with this uh, year being the 40 years since uh, the revolution, and we're talking about um, how has uh, the, the culture changed, um, the society standards, uh, how that impacted artists uh, today, um, how are artists in Iran uh, marking this occasion? Can you give us examples of some of the, the more modern uh, writers today and what they're writing about? Sure. So um, actually, so my, the last chapter in my book will will deal with um, social media as a, an interesting platform, perhaps ironically, <laughs> because a lot of it is banned and blocked in Iran. Um, so I heard this morning, for example, that um, Ayatollah Khamenei had issued one of the biggest pardons in recent history. He's pardoning 50,000 prisoners. And he announced this on his Twitter account, despite the fact that Twitter is banned in Iran. Right. <laughs> so there are all these paradoxical ways in which writers continue to operate within Iran, uh, despite censorship and, um, and around censorship. So, uh, for example, there are a lot of feminist poets working on Instagram who are using the uh, the dual text image uh, capacities of, of Instagram to um, not only make their work more capacious and reach different audiences. Um, and my, the argument of my book is essentially that uh, hybrid genres, gen- genres that are shifting and uh, multifaceted, allow for more complex cross-cultural representations. Uh, and Instagram is a, an interesting, very interesting new frontier for that, I think. So not just focusing on the memoir, but experimenting with other forms. Yeah, so especially around uh, the revolution, the hostage crisis, um, you know, around the, 1970, the 1979 to the early 80s, um, some of these tropes became uh, very set, right? And uh, my my mentor, Fazlani Milani, prominent scholar of Iranian women's literature, calls this the neo-hostage narrative. Mm-hmm. So Not Without My Daughter is a great example of this, right? Iran as a country being portrayed as a prison. And this, there was a spate of memoirs, um, dozens and dozens, all with very similar covers, you know, veiled women. And the, the cliched story is as soon as a woman leaves Iran, right, she's liberated. Um, and so... A lot of memoirs have fallen into this trope. Some have not. Um, something I've written about is Marjan Satrapi's well-known graphic novel, Persepolis, which was, of course, turned into a film. Um, she does, the first couple of panels of, of that book do talk about the veil, right, um, and, and the imposition of the hijab, which, of course, it's important to remember in Iran. Um, there was also mandatory unveiling, which was strongly resisted in 1936 under, under Reza Shah. Um, so the point is choice, right? Mm-hmm. But um, that memoir is, I think, largely because of the combination of text and image, tells a more complex, multifaceted story about um, oppression and discrimination that she faced both both in Iran and when she was living in Europe. So there are memoirs, um, and the uh, the graphic novel tells a more complicated story because of its genre. Uh, The opening of the Ghazal, as I mentioned. New Wave Cinema is another site for this. Of course, Iranian New Wave Cinema has been so central in the world cinema scene. And social media, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, why has Iranian literature struggled to uh, gain global readership? Is it because of of the government and and Westerners' views of Iran because of the Ayatollah? So part of it is um, is political reasons, right? Constantly shifting sanctions and the fact that it's impossible to do, to do business with Iran. Um, and part of it is the censorship of of the regime itself. I, I should mention to our listeners that you did spend some time in Iran. Tell us uh, in the couple minutes that we have left um, some of your observations when you were there. 
Well, so first of all, it's been, um, unfortunately, over 10 years. <laughs> but um, I'll never forget my first visit, I said, to the Tomb of Hafiz, um, seeing teenagers, um, reading, reading poetry at his tomb. Um, and something I learned about the chador is that the, the black chador, which, of course, is kind of the cliched symbol, is um, actually not the traditional one. So especially in rural areas, traditionally women wore lightweight, multicolored chador, often printed chadors. Um, and there are artists who reflect on this. The photographer Hale Anvari has a series of um, amazing collections of like kind of portraying how the chador was, in fact, more expressive and multicolored. Um, the black chador was um, a modern and urban uh, adaptation in the 20th century. Uh, Marie Osby has been my guest uh, for this uh, last part of our show, Assistant Professor of English and Global Islamic Studies at Connecticut College. Her forthcoming book is Genres Without Borders, Reading Globally Between Modern Iran and the West. Marie, thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. It's our mini winter campaign here at Connecticut Public Radio. If you appreciate the conversations, the, the topics that you learn here on Where We Live, please support this show. Here are my colleagues to tell you how.